And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also is with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Thank you, Jesse. Last week, we began a series in Luke's Gospel, Luke's account of the events leading to Jesus' death and his resurrection. Rog helped us begin last Sunday, understand the significance of the meal Jesus had with his disciples, the last Passover meal. Today, we'll consider what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, the next Sunday, God willing, to the cross and Luke's account of the interaction between Jesus and the two criminals who were crucified with him. Then on Good Friday, the death of Jesus on the cross. And on Easter Day, his glorious resurrection from the dead. And the final talk on Easter Sunday evening will remind us that the Easter message 
Christ died for our sins and Christ is risen, is the only message that saves humanity. And so a message that is to be spoken everywhere. It is good news. It is wonderful news. It is urgent news. Please, please do invite. Please pray for the courage to do that. Invite people to these Easter services, either online or in person in the building from next Sunday. Details of all the times and information will be explained tonight and sent to you. Now, remember that the events we are looking at in Luke's gospel are eyewitness accounts. Luke is a careful and methodical historian. He writes with the expressed intention of giving us certainty. This is what happened. At the most significant time in all of human history, these are the most significant events in all of human history. Now that is quite a claim, but think on it. This, what we are reading and studying over these weeks is how God, through his son Jesus, saves humanity. How he dies bearing our sin and bearing the wrath of God, the just judgment for our sin. How he dies in our place. How he opens up the gates to heaven. How he is raised in defeat of death, that we might have life in him now through the spirit and certainty of resurrection to everlasting life. That is what these events achieve for humanity. There cannot be anything more significant than this. For in his death and resurrection, as Connor prayed, Jesus deals with humanity's greatest problem. He does not belittle the problems we face in this world. He has compassion. It breaks his heart, but he has the conviction out of love to take us to the deeper issues, the deepest problems, and the glorious solution and answer in his death and resurrection. For Jesus offers us rescue from eternal hell. To eternal life. All we must do is repent and believe. And I pray with faith and with conviction and with confidence in God's Spirit that this Easter time in Scotland, many will come to Jesus. It was on the Thursday night that Jesus met with his disciples for the Passover meal to remember the events of the Exodus. That night he inaugurated a new memorial, the Lord's Supper or Communion. When we eat bread and drink wine to remember his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. How we long to do that again. It will be soon. A glorious new covenant between God and humanity. 
sealed in the blood of Jesus. At the meal, Jesus predicted that one of the close group of 12 would betray him. He predicted that the others would desert him and that Peter would deny him. And late on the Thursday night, Jesus and his disciples, except Judas, who would betray him, left the place where they had gathered for the Passover meal and walked down the Kidron Valley to the outskirts of the city on the Mount of Olives. Verse 39 in our passage, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. This was a familiar place for Jesus and his disciples. It was their custom or habit to go there for a rest, a quiet place late at night. Matthew and Mark give us a little more detail. The particular place on the Mount of Olives was a garden called Gethsemane, which means olive press. The place where the olives came under pressure, pressed down to yield their oil. And what I'd like us to do in the time we have is try to understand simply what happened that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. So our focus will be limited to verses 39 to 46 of Luke's account. Remember, it is very late on the Thursday evening perhaps close to midnight, in the dead of the night. How long were they in the garden? From the other gospel accounts, we can surmise an hour or two. As Jesse read, you will have noted what happens next. Jesus is betrayed and arrested in the garden in the early hours of Friday morning, Good Friday morning, and taken to the high priest's house where Peter denied him. Events move quickly from there, the different mock trials before the Sanhedrin, Herod, and Pilate. Then Jesus is condemned and crucified at nine o'clock in the morning, nine hours from now. Nine hours from the dead of night in the garden. He will be on the cross. He will be dead by three o'clock in the afternoon. But here in the garden, in the dead of night, We are very close, that close to the crucifixion, only nine hours away and six more till his death. Now, can I suggest this title for these verses that describe Gethsemane? The battle in the garden. In the garden of Gethsemane that night, an immense battle took place. Now, our salvation was secured on the cross where Jesus was made sin for us and bore God's wrath instead of us. Our salvation was secure on the cross when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His forsakenness, securing our forgiveness. And victory was announced from the cross as Jesus cried out, it is finished. And breathed his last sin and death defeated Satan defeated. Our salvation was secured at the cross at immense cost. But Satan knew that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, it was over for him. There was nothing Satan could then do. When the nails were hammered into Jesus' hands and feet, The nails pierced Satan's heart. When the darkness descended at Calvary, 
signifying God's wrath directed on Jesus, Satan must have been deranged. There was nothing he could do. Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Would have driven these nails deeper into Satan's heart. There was nothing he could do. And when Jesus cried, it is finished. It was finished for sin. It was finished for death. And it was finished for Satan. His power defeated. Our salvation was secured on the cross. Immense stuff happened on the cross. But there was an immense battle that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the dark night, a few hours before the cross, when Satan did everything in his power to stop Jesus going to the cross. For in the sovereignty of God, there was an hour when Satan released and unleashed all his tempting efforts to stop Jesus going to the cross. And this is that hour, Jesus said, this is your hour. And the power of darkness in the middle of the dark night in the garden, all the fury of Satan. Evil darkness was unleashed on the Son of God. Now, let me explain what is happening with five simple headings. Firstly, alone in Gethsemane. Verse 39, again, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. Jesus told the disciples to pray that they would not fall into temptation. Presumably, he means by that the temptation to desert Jesus, to deny him. But then Jesus goes alone into the garden. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw. The other gospel writers give a little more detail that Jesus took three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, further into the garden than the others, exhorting them to keep watch and pray, to keep watch and pray perhaps for Judas and the mob who would come to arrest Jesus, but to keep watch surely over Jesus too, for he needed their comfort. He needed their fellowship. But Jesus went into the heart of the garden alone. A short time ago, he had been in the room with his disciples. He had walked with 11 of them to the Mount of Olives. And now he goes alone into the garden. Why did he go alone? Think of the events that were about to unfold on the cross once a year. Once a year under the old covenant, the high priest would go alone. 
isolate himself from the people and enter the Holy of Holies in the temple, enter into the presence of God. He would go alone and offer a sacrifice for sin. The high priest stood alone, the one man between God and the people offering a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the high priest. He is our high priest. He is the forever high priest. He will stand alone. He will hang alone on a tree. One God between, one man between God and humanity offering the sacrifice of his own body and blood for sin. Salvation is through Christ alone. So Christ goes alone to the garden, to the cross. Jesus goes alone in the garden as he must go alone to the cross. And the battle with Satan in the garden is a battle he must fight alone. We cannot go with him. Otherwise, our salvation would not be by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ. Alone. You know, when we say that, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, we think just Jesus but think of it in this different way. He walks into that garden alone. Alone in Gethsemane, Jesus experienced agony. That's the second heading, agony in Gethsemane. Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. Was Jesus in agony? Luke records, verse 44, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. All of the gospel writers describe Jesus' agony. Luke describes it in this way. Luke was a doctor. He understands these things. Sweating blood is a condition called hematidrosis. It is extremely rare. It occurs when a human body is under the most intense pressure or stress. Tiny blood vessels under the skin burst and mingle with sweat, usually on the face, sometimes blood in tears. Now, I read this on a medical website this week. Doctors don't know exactly what triggers hematidrosis, though it is associated with extreme engagement in battle, with the likelihood of death, and the body conflicted with a flight or fight response. That is exactly what is happening. The other gospel writers speak of Jesus' sorrow, his distress, his crying. Sorrow is not unknown to Jesus before this point. His sorrow at the sight of the suffering of humanity expressed again and again through the gospels. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Sin made him sorrowful. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but the sorrow he experienced here in the garden 
was of a different order, of a different magnitude, of a different intensity. Hebrews 5 and 7 describes it like this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Matthew and Luke, Matthew and Mark record these words of Jesus, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. His sorrow was so intense that it nearly killed him, so intense that there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. What caused such agony? The answer is what Jesus refers to in his prayer, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The cup is God's wrath, God's judgment that Jesus would bear on the cross. All through the Bible, the cup is used to symbolize God's wrath. But surely, surely Jesus had known about this, that he must die, that he must be made sin and drink the cup of God's wrath. Surely he knew about this. Surely he had come to a settled conviction that that was his destiny. Yes, he did know. Of course he did. And up until this point, there was a resolute determination, an unflinching determination on his part to go to the cross. So what is happening here? Is it that God is allowing Jesus to see the full horror, the full unmitigated horror of what he would experience on the cross, the sum of the eternities of wrath for all who will believe throughout all of history. That's one thing. He sees and experiences here the punishment. Jesus had no experience of wrath. It was alien to his sinless humanity. But I wonder if even more awful than that was the realization that in a few hours he would be made sin, that he would become sin. And that realization, that contemplation hit his body like a terrible shock, an assault on his sinless humanity. He was human. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The sinless flesh would be made sin to save us. And every instinct, every fiber, every sinew, every cell, every synapse in his body shook at the thought such that he sweated blood. Yet most awful of all is the terrible prospect of being separated from the Father from whom he had been in perfect fellowship since eternity. Jesus had never known anything but perfect fellowship with his Father, and in a few hours he would be forsaken. Did the words that Jesus would cry on the cross cross his mind here? My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Alone in Gethsemane, agony in Gethsemane. And awful as that is, there is more, there is third temptation in Gethsemane. In the sovereignty of God, there was an hour when Satan released and unleashed all his tempting efforts to stop Jesus going to the cross. If Satan could tempt Jesus not to the cross, then everyone would be in hell. Heaven would be empty. That was Satan's intention from the start. The start of Jesus' ministry when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Satan tried to persuade Jesus that he could have it all, satisfaction, acceptance, the kingdoms of the world, now without the cross. Jesus' battle with Satan at the start of his ministry was intense, such that angels attended him like here. Or think of when Jesus predicted his death, the Son of Man must be suffer and be killed. At that point, Jesus was resolute in his conviction. Jesus spoke plainly, but Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, no, Jesus, you will not die. What did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Satan is behind every temptation, every obstacle to Jesus going to the cross. If only he could stop Jesus going to the cross. All that God had promised from the time of humanity's first rebellion and the fall, right back in Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the servant and redeem humanity. All that God had promised through these thousands of years would be a lie. Satan's intention from the start From creation. From the start of God's plan to rescue humanity after the fall. And now after centuries of promise, it's all about to be fulfilled. In just a few hours, and Satan, the serpent, is biting the heels of the Savior. His last chance. Satan tempted humanity in the Garden of Eden to sin, to eat the fruit that God said they must not eat. It looked good to eat, but it was the will of God that they did not eat. And Satan tempted them, persuaded them to eat it. Satan said, God really did not mean for you not to eat that tree. He didn't say that. And now Satan is tempting Jesus, the second Adam, not to go to the cross. God the Father had said, you must go to the cross, Jesus. And Satan is saying, no, you don't. He didn't really say that. In the Garden of Eden, Satan tempted humanity. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan tempts the second Adam, the eternal Son of God made man. And now do you see how high the stakes are? Just consider the implications for the course of human history. When Adam and Eve were tempted, look what happened. Consider the implications for the course of human history had Satan persuaded Jesus not to go to the cross we would all be in hell. Gosh, that really has just struck me. 
we would all be in eternal hell. Alone in Gethsemane, agony in Gethsemane, temptation in Gethsemane, for prayer in Gethsemane. What did Jesus told the disciples to do? Pray that you do not fall into temptation. What does Jesus do? He prays lest he fall into temptation. He kneels to pray. Mark tells us that in the course of his praying, Jesus fell on his face to the ground. Now notice very carefully what Jesus prays. Father, Abba, my Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is a request of Jesus, the eternal Son, to his heavenly Father. It is a specific request of Jesus. Will you remove this cup from me? That is what he is asking. Why is he asking that? Because of the horror of what he is facing, the wrath of God, being made sin, being separated from his Father. Because of the shock to his holy, sinless flesh. And because of the extraordinary strength of temptation he is facing. His temptation is real. It is incredibly powerful. And all of that together in this crisis moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when the salvation of humanity is on the line and all the powers of evil are arrayed and assaulting the Savior. He asks that he might not go to the cross. He really does ask that. Praise it once. He prays it again. But there are two caveats in his prayer. First, Jesus knows Satan is tempting him. That's why he prays. Jesus prays that he will not be led into temptation, that he will be delivered from evil. And secondly, he prays not just, Father, remove this cup from me. He prays, Father, if you are willing, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. And then again, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He is praying, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. His prayer, remove this cup from me, is preceded by the words, if you are willing, and followed by the words, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submits to his Father's will. Father, will you remove this cup from me? And all of human history pivots on this moment. And the answer is no. And at that point, the devil is done. Jesus gets up. Alone, agony, temptation, prayer, and now triumph.
From this point onwards, Jesus never flinches. The battle to go to the cross has been won. The last battle, terrible agony, and the victory of the cross was ahead, but here in the Garden of Gethsemane, a mighty battle was won. And for these few hours, These nine hours remained before Jesus hung on the cross. I warrant that the relationship between God and the Father and Jesus the Son must have never been sweeter. Verse 45, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus' sorrow was far greater, yet theirs was real. Have you ever fallen asleep out of sorrow? Jesus' sorrow led him to pray. Their sorrow overcame them in sleep. Jesus did not fall into temptation. They all will. In the verses that follow Jesus' arrest in the garden, 47 to 53, and Jessie, in her reading, just conveyed that so clearly. Jesus is supremely in control. Enough, 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 he said. Let's go to the cross. The events of Gethsemane are behind him. Satan's assaults on the purposes of God in history are behind Jesus. And then verses 54 to 62, Peter denies he knows Jesus. What Jesus had predicted about Jesus uh, came true. Let me read a couple of verses from the very end of the passage Jesse read from verse 60. Peter said, this is the third time, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I wonder if when the Lord looked at Peter, some of the sweat drops of blood would still be on his face like rivulets. We all stand with Peter. He'd seen Jesus in Gethsemane. He'd soon see Jesus on the cross. But now Jesus turns to look at him. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Not ultimately a moment of anguish for Peter. For here begins his path through repentance to saving faith in Jesus. Now, as we conclude, what does Gethsemane prove? That there is no other way of salvation, but through faith in Jesus. What did Jesus ask his father? Is there no other way? And God said, no. Someone who knows nothing of the gospel might say, I will find my own way to God. But when someone who knows the gospel says, I will find my own way of salvation, they spit in the face of God and Jesus. When they are converted, 
They're shocked that they ever thought they knew better. Gethsemane proves that there is no other way of salvation but faith in Jesus, and Gethsemane proves that we are greatly, greatly loved, that God the Father said no to his son's prayer because of his love for me. I want to say to God, I want to almost remonstrate with him and say, have you loved me more than your son? Or how much my Lord Jesus loved me when every instinct wanted his father to remove the cup. Yet he said, not my will, but you will be done. And Gethsemane proves way beyond all reasonable doubt how much we need salvation in Jesus. Let us pray. For me, he prayed in the garden, bowed to the will divine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Amen.